0: Hello there. Welcome back to The Price of Pain. Today's guest was a lot of fun. This is one of my favorite interviews. I know I say that a lot. But Dr. Patrick Tai has so much on his plate that, that I don't think we could cover it all in one episode. This is going to be another one of those where I hope that we have a round two or a round three in the coming months. Dr. Tai uh, specializes in acute pain, and he's a professor of anesthesiology here at the University of Florida. He's also the co-director of the Perioperative Cognitive Anesthesia Network. When I say he has a lot on his plate, he is a practicing physician. He also conducts some very interesting research in using machine learning and deep learning to help with some of the decision-making process in medicine fascinating stuff and it was immediately over my head so when we start in on this you'll notice at the beginning of the the interview he jumps right in he's very passionate about it hang in there we'll circle back to some of those terms and concepts and and it might be in in the form of a a prequel but we'll come back and lay some of the groundwork for that and make it you know tie it all together as we go on and in addition to that he you know this this guy has patents and he's you know, incredibly well-funded through the NIH, uh, does amazing work in anesthesia, and I just really enjoyed this conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this one. Dr. Patrick Ty.
1: Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crowe in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives.
0: And just looking over your CV, there's something that stood out to me that is uncommon, or at least in my experience, and that's that you went to pre-med, went to med school, went through your residency, and then your fellowship, and then you got a master's degree. I got <laughs> so, master's degree. <laughs> so, tell me about that process. When we'll, and we'll go back maybe a little bit to the beginning, because I'd love to hear about why and how you became interested in medicine in general. But just that specific factor was really, it, was, I, it stopped me in my tracks. You don't normally see that come last. So what, what prompted the, the master's in, in clinical and translational research?
2: Uh, great, uh, great question. Um, to answer that, I think we actually have to go back a few years before that master's started. Um, so when I was applying for different residency programs, and uh, our program director here at the University of Florida at the time, Mike Mela, tremendous man, oh, oh, amazing educator, um, he suggested based on kind of my interests at the time, actually as a medical student even before <laughs> before I'd applied for residency, um, one of my faculty mentors had suggested uh, learning a little bit more about how one of our monitors works, something called the BIS monitor. Mm. And to learn about that uh, you had to get into learning about EEG's time series analysis, really highfalutin math with time series analysis that most of which went way over my head <laughs> but I was
0: not a math major by any means mm, in undergrad. I, could, I could sympathize with that
2: and uh, but it was fun I mean I, for I just I found myself just diving into it really exciting at the end I had to present to he and a couple other faculty um, over a kind of little dinner meeting. Mm-hmm. And looking back, I'm just I'm so grateful that they that they hosted that. It was really incredibly kind of them. Um, they really did give a, a lot of their time and, um, you know, very patient <laughs> with, <laughs> with with my approach. But uh, I learned a ton. And based on that, during residency, my, my program, I think I'm not exactly sure why, but he said, you know, you might want to be interested in doing some research uh, as a as a um, senior resident. As we'll mm-hmm. call it CA three. So I spent a few months doing research on that. And um, at the end of the <laughs> research, I collected all my data. It was a lot of work. And I only had a few weeks left and uh, took it to my advisor. And I said, I think I'm ready to start doing the this, this statistical analyses now. Never, I mean, it had been years since I'd had any stats class. Mm-hmm. Started doing the stats. And, uh, and he said, actually, I, I really can't help you with that. I'm going to recommend you go to this other faculty who does stats. Now, again, for perspective of how little I knew about stats, I started taking a stats class in college. Okay. and uh, In undergrad? In undergrad. Okay. It was a summer course. Mm-hmm. And I was working at a hospital at the time, and so I was taking this class at uh, intervals. And um, that was the same summer I met my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Mm-hmm. And a week or two in, I decided I think I'd rather spend my weekends Hanging out with this girl <laughs> then going to stats <laughs> class. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a tough decision, I, girlfriend, y- stats. Right. You know, the you decision know. worked out pretty darn well. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like know, it. You know, 20 plus years and two kids later. Um, but, yeah, that shows you know, two weeks of stats and then my evidence-based medicine class mm-hmm. in medical mm-hmm. school, which was actually, I think, a pretty good class, mm-hmm. um, but didn't teach you how to do analyses from scratch. Right, right. So I walk up to my faculty member now as a senior resident with my dad in hand. I was like, okay, it's finally caught up with me, right? And uh, <laughs> the faculty member, to make a long story short, basically said the best way to learn is to do. And I thought, oh, no. It That's really not has, what you want to hear. <laughs> it really has caught up with me. And I'm forever grateful, frankly, that that faculty member did that. Mm-hmm. They did it nicely. They did it a lot of compassion mm-hmm. and they were right the best way to learn is to do and not just hand it to somebody else sure. especially at that stage of training mm-hmm. so when I did my residency and, and fellowship you know I finished my residency and did my fellowship um, and my chair at the time said you know if you really want to stay in academics and do research you need to learn how to do research mm-hmm. and you know I think if she would have said that a couple of years earlier I've been like oh, I know how to do research I just collect data. I read papers having been through that research <laughs> experience I thought Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> right. There is a lot to learn. Um, and so she recommended this something called APSE program where um, it's it was the route to get a master's degree in clinical and translational research. methods. Mm-hmm. frankly hosted by uh, Dr. Marion Leemacher who was phenomenal. I, actually, uh, I know her yep. as well. Yeah, <laughs> she she was amazing. I'll never forget taking a semester long class on how to write papers. And I, I, one week I spent the entire week Writing a paragraph, mm-hmm. hours and hours, mm-hmm. every single word got scratched out by my advisors, and re, and I had to rewrite every single word multiple times over. And I remember going up to her at one point, saying, "Listen, I spent a week with a paragraph. If you want me to write a manuscript, this can't, this won't <laughs> scale. <laughs> Please tell me there's a different way." And she, she laughs. "Yes, yes, yes. We, you know, trust me. We'll, we'll figure out different ways." Mm-hmm. Because I thought, I, I mean, this is like supernatural. If, the, if at this rate, if they're able to write entire papers, because mm-hmm. this is ridiculous, um, and, sh- and she was right. You know, with experience and shortcuts and sure. more training, it, sure. it gets a little better. Um, I, I still struggle.
0: Well, and what's I, great is when you get a little ways down the road, there's always boilerplate wording as well. You know, if you stay in a, <laughs> if you stay in a, a discipline, right. you know, you can take maybe some methods section from one of your other papers and adapt it, and so on and so forth. Right. But I still, I, I'm glad that you say that because I'm still at a point now where I you know, just, just went through a, a grant submission uh, working with, uh, with my primary mentor, one of my colleagues, and, and uh, you know, it's one thing to, to, to have experience, but then when you're working with or for someone new, they have different expectations, different writing styles, and, and you know, especially when you, you know, slightly change disciplines, which I did from my PhD to, to my postdoctoral fellowship. Um, it was the same kind of thing. I was like, wow, you know, just rewrite, 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 and sometimes spend an inordinate amount of time, particularly for somebody who already does this, uh, on a very small section. <laughs> and, yes. then, and then you're right. You, you do get to a point where it just kind of breaks through and the momentum takes it over. But.
2: Now, I will tell you that this master's degree had a couple of very interesting tangents. Some of those turned out to be less than tangents. So great stats classes. Mm-hmm. I learned a ton. And, and and they were, not only do you learn a lot, but but they were really tailored to you know clinician learners mm-hmm. <laughs> who were doing things not because they were for homework, but because they it had to be done for their research and yeah. for their work. And, and it really, really respected how they conducted the course for, for us in there. I really appreciate it. It didn't make it easier, mm-hmm. but it really, um, it aligned with the motivations I think for everybody, which was helpful. But one of the funny things that happened is, well, as a fellow, you know, I'd have to go through the OR schedule each day and figure out. In this case, like one one simple decision heuristic we had is, you know, who to who to consider for a nerve block next day, in ter- you know, for the next day in terms of who would offer one to, mm-hmm. because um, not every surgery requires regional anesthesia, et cetera, et cetera. And the heuristic was all based on CPT codes, basically. At the mm-hmm. end of the day. And c- CPT codes for, oh, for these those are who called, don't know. Yes, these are s- current procedural terminology codes, I think. And these are the codes that describe exactly what numerically, as a numerical code, what surgery mm-hmm. is going to be performed. I understand. And I thought, there's we've got to be able to use this so that we're not missing c- patients and such like that to do a little better. And uh, so we're going to the stats, one of my stats profs and saying, so I got this data set. I'd like to use it to predict this. And they looked at the data set, and they said, no. (laughs) (laughs) They said, that's, you know, uh, look at all these assumptions you're making with your statistical models. This is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And they weren't wrong in that regard, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to build parameter estimates with some of the data we had and the outcomes we were looking at. There were some challenges, to say the least, Mm -hmm. especially for a real novice like me. So... I thought well, that's interesting, it, and somehow I came across this idea of well, maybe I'll look at other, you know, see if there are other solutions to this. Like, how do others support the decisions that they make? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started, frankly, just cold calling via email um, people around campus and say, you know, just for things who look like they're doing interesting things in this area, and uh, including some some guy uh, from the College of Business named Hal Doon, and. Uh, I said, I've got this problem. I'm, you know, I see you're working on genetic algorithms. That sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they are, but <laughs> sounds really neat. And it sounds like you're doing something similar, just in a completely different domain, not related to healthcare at all. Mm-hmm. He says, Yeah, let's go grab lunch. I said, Sure. So I'm going to meet with a you know a senior faculty member um, in the College of Business. So I, I get all dressed up for lunch, and I think he shows up in flip-flops and a polo shirt and shorts, <laughs> and I'm like, well, This is this is interesting. And over the next two, two and a half hour lunch, just had a phenomenal chat about mm-hmm. statistical learning theory and mechanics. And you know, he he approached it from more of like an operations research perspective with a lot of optimization theory, which is a little different angle than I think a lot of us learn about these mm-hmm. things. Fascinating. And just a cool guy to chat with, too. And he was really interested in what we were doing. And it, it, That's <laughs> that's always <laughs> that's always was, exciting. And he was like, You're doing what? You make these decisions how? I was like, Yeah. Based on experience.
0: <laughs> when, when you when you pull back the curtain uh, of medicine right. a little bit and people say, oh, oh, that's what it is.
2: Clearly lots of opportunities for improvement mm-hmm. in terms of all sorts of things. It, no surprise to anybody, right? Sure, And sure. anywhere in the world, frankly, sure. in healthcare. Um, and so, yeah, we started working together and, and using these AI tools. Now, I want to be clear, it's not like, well, stats couldn't do it, so we turned to machine learning and that fixed everything. No, 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 no. There are trade-offs between the yeah. two. There are some things we decided to say we aren't going to be able to do well because of these tools. You get some advantages. There's some things that are a little disadvantaged. But they just they have a different philosophy, in, first off, in the in the business approach um, in terms of what they're trying to achieve, and also in the models that they are looking. And this also has kind of turned to the first discussions on statistical versus quote unquote AI mm-hmm. philosophical approaches to data. And and you'll never hear me saying. Um, one is right and one is wrong they're they're different in both how their strengths and weaknesses but at least introduced us to the sure discussion. So, that,
0: so that was the beginning and, and first off i one thing that I've, i always love hearing is it's it seems really intriguing and more frequent than i ever anticipated to hear how so many great ideas career changing and 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 even paradigm shifting ideas come from somebody coming along and throwing cold water on some. You know, you have this idea, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is what I'd like to do. Like, that'll never work. And so then you end up in a meeting with a guy in flip flops, and and it shifts everything and opens up a new possibility for for maybe going a, a different route or, or at least a, you know trying to do what you're wanting to do through a different mechanism. And so before we get too far into that. One of the reasons that that I wanted to talk to you is because you have this really interesting mix of of medicine, and as as an anesthesiologist, there I have tons of questions anyway, uh, and and you're unique to the show because we we do a lot of chronic pain research, and we have a lot of guests who who, who speak from a chronic pain standpoint. Uh, so acute pain treatment uh, that that in in and of itself, we could talk about for, I'm sure for quite a while, but then as you've touched on, there's this this other very serious component to what you do and that's the application of deep learning machine learning and AI artificial intelligence and I'm relatively certain that if I only have a cursory grasp on this because it, it, it is used a little bit in, in what we do and and uh, you know for example we use machine learning algorithms to look at differences in in brain compositions and to help us analyze brain scans and, and to look at some of the you know the centrally mediated mechanisms of pain but if I only have a cursory understanding of how these things can be applied, then I'm sure much of our audience is in the dark on this as well. So maybe we should take a big step back, <laughs> and and just focus on when you talk about AI or machine learning, when looking at these data and trying to understand how some of the codes and and it, because one of the the papers that you were you're just a senior author if I'm correct on uh, just recently accepted was decision making right. So this is is this how you're applying this and.
2: Well, so a really good question. Um, you know, when we first started, I think the hope was that it would help, it would, we'd quickly get to the point where it provided what we now call adaptive clinical decision support. What we quickly realized is that there were a lot of potential caveats and hang and potential for harm, frankly, mm-hmm. um, bias, inequity, um, Getting better at some decisions while worse than others, mm. uh, which is problematic. That it actually led us to hold back a little bit and say we need to we need to look a little bit more about this.
0: And so the decision you're referring to is is it a case where you'll have uh, a procedure that's that's being conducted and and the computer will recommend uh, specific treatment or, or dosage or is, are those the decisions you mean? Well, so when we talk
2: about artificial intelligence, there are three general areas that that we generally. The first is unsupervised, and we look at just patterns in data. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened to the patients and the data or the observations. We're just looking at patterns. The second is a supervised approach, where we know something about, say, the patient. And we also know what happened to the patient for whatever outcome of interest. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we try to link the two through some fancy math. The third is we say, all right, let's figure out how to use these features to make a better decision um, to maybe potentially change an outcome based on a policy and a system of rewards, et cetera. And that's that's more of like a reinforcement learning type approach. And can you give an example of that? So maybe you have a policy where you say, if I had this set of, if I'm in this state, like playing Pac-Man or Space Invaders, (laughs) (laughs) and um, I look at this, I can move left or right in Space Invaders, Mm that's a good example. And then I'm going to make a decision. And uh, if I'm wrong, I lose points. If I win, I gain points. So we set up a policy that says we move in a way so that over time we accumulate as many points as possible Mm -hmm. and don't die or whatever happens bad in Space Invaders. So that's that's reinforcement learning. And that's where you see these headlines of, I think recently they taught a computer to play a race car game faster than humans or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're not really quite at the point where we develop a policy using artificial intelligence to make better clinical decisions. Maybe Mm -hmm. someday we'll get there to help in some areas, but we're not there yet. One of the earliest examples we ran into with the problems though was in pain management. Mm -hmm. We said, well what would happen if we did try to design a policy to make better decisions about how to to decrease patients' pain scores immediately after surgery? And this was a thought exercise. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the spectrum of, you know, States that a patient was in and then potential actions we could take. And then this thought exercise, we said, we said, well, this is easy. (laughs) We just make sure that every patient before they wake up gets 47 pounds of morphine. (laughs) And we guarantee that in the next hour, nobody's going to have any pain. (laughs) Simple, right? I mean, we have a... We have a set of rewards, mm-hmm. penalties. Uh, we're only talking about one outcome, right? right. Just pain. Right. We have a set of rewards, and we can use that reward system and the decisions to get a policy, you know, to, to generate a policy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, in the thought exercise, it's immediately silly. We're not giving forty-seven pounds of morphine to anybody at the end of surgery, <laughs> right? We want them to <laughs> do things like breathe, live, yeah,
0: right? <laughs> right. <laughs> without the
2: need of a machine. <laughs> um, and we'd like them to have a blood pressure. You know, there's there's all sorts of. Th- 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 things mm-hmm. you know, we would like them to not become addicted to opioids yeah, right of course but if you're only looking at one outcome well the decision's pretty easy mm-hmm. when you go to look at more than one outcome at the same time ooh, this gets really tricky even just as a thought exercise mm-hmm.
0: well and not only that uh, if, if that's assuming you have Every patient is the same. Right. Right. Same age, same vitals, everything, right? Well,
2: Forty seven pounds of morphine, it turns out <laughs> is probably enough
0: for most if of our patients. Once once you branch out from the the, the binary <laughs> option there of right. yeah, pain or no pain. Yeah.
2: And you want them to like wake up that week or right, something right, like that. Right, You're right. absolutely right. right. We haven't you know, there's patient strata, procedural strata, outcomes. We're looking at multiple outcomes. Some of those are in opposition to one another. Mm-hmm. So you wanna maybe minimize their pain, but also minimize how many opioids you give them and minimize the risk of becoming addicted to opioids. And suddenly, this gets to be a little bit more of a complicated decision mm-hmm. uh, exercise. And it's frankly one that needs to be shared. Mm-hmm. And so, so when we talk about augmenting decisions, this is one where we say, wow, we got a, we got a lot more homework to do before mm-hmm. we're ready to do this. It's the difference between lighting a candle with some experimental rocket fuel. <laughs> and saying, let's put some astronauts on top of that right, candle, right. And, and right there's there's a little bit more safety that goes into yeah. this as we as we transition from an experimental mindset to an operational one that's yeah. robustly safe.
0: And so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but but some of the benefit to to using machine learning for this, where you can do a number of computations in relatively short order, when you start adding variables to that, some of some of the as as you were talking about the considerations that you have to make uh do, is that what what the appeal for machine learning is is in you can make those computations and 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 understand probabilities and likelihoods much more in in a modeled form without having to to try them one by one by one and and how they covariate and et cetera is that is that the is that the so, so i think there are two
2: of uh, there are many Advantages, also some disadvantages, but two of the ones that stick out to me are one, many of your machine learning approaches are what we call Mm -hmm. Mm nonlinear, So they can figure out a better relationship between the descriptions we have of a patient or problem and the outcome of interest or the decision Mm -hmm. we're trying to help. Mm -hmm. Um, In in many of our simpler models, we're stuck with a single line or curve shape and trying to, you really can't mold that very much. In machine learning, we can get much more flexible and creative with that are lots of caveats and problems that can arise with this but that's that's one potential benefit for some problems the other is that beginning of 2011 or so we started having deep learning mm-hmm. and that allowed us to use unstructured data so this this meant that data didn't have to fit into rows and columns at least not uh, initially <laughs> um, <laughs> but it could be things like pictures sound movie clips Mm. Um, shared experiences, right? or multimodal data, um, X-rays, CAT scans, um, your wristwatch actigraphy, mm-hmm. um, vital sign, very complicated multi-time series, uh, multivariate time series data, networks, graphs. So suddenly, we found that there are a whole bunch of really exciting questions that we could we could begin to address that we'd frankly discounted in mm-hmm. the past because we just had this intuition that linear regression was going to have a trouble in trying to figure out that cat scan of my brain
0: yeah
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, but again deep learning really changed what we could consider doing still lots of caveats still still work to be done there but a lot of exciting new questions with the new
0: toolbox well let's look let's look at both of those then first off what are, are some of the the relatively new which it seems like most if not all are uh, because it wasn't that long ago that we're talking about you know say deep blue versus you know gasparov in a, a chess match right where you've got the computer versus man kind of thing but it hasn't been that long since then till now but are there breakthroughs with machine learning deep learning ai that are now producing solutions that are are increasingly commonly used
2: so really good question Um, Some of the examples we've seen are in looking at certain types of retinal disease Was one of the projects out of Google. We've also seen a host of projects.
0: You said it was one of the projects out of Google. Out of
2: Google, yes. Uh, Google Health Initiative, one of the Google Health programs um, was looking at photographs of of the back of patient's eyes and Mm -hmm. trying to diagnose, I think it was diabetic retinopathy with that. And using a machine learning approach to look at that to see uh, whether there's a problem with the retina.
0: I don't mean to derail you so soon in, in answering my question with another tangent, but why Google? What do you what do you suppose the uh, well, so Google's, the benefit is there?
2: Google is very good with complicated data. Uh, you know, so we we look at Google as a search engine, but they're also very good with frankly fancy math with really big data sets. A lot of what we see on the front end when we interact with products not just from Google, but from lots and lots and lots of, um, frankly, commercial consumer products we see Mm -hmm. actually have a lot of artificial intelligence working in the background.
0: This is the algorithms that people hear about. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That that if you you search something, if you've been, if you've searched Google 500 times and I've searched Google 500 times and you put in a keyword and I put in a keyword, we might get a different list of results.
2: That's one example.
0: And that's based on what what the algorithms have learned about what might be Mm -hmm. most appealing to put in front of you. Okay. It's also
2: things so like... Mother turned 65 uh, recently, and so we were looking for pictures of mom, and instead of having to pull out the shoe boxes, we were able to just look through facial recognition for the, golly, I think everybody has tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of photos nowadays because mm-hmm. it's so easy. Mm-hmm. And instead of having to scroll through all of those, we simply found her face, and, and it pulled up a whole bunch of pictures of her. I, this is that's, that's artificial intelligence working at a background. Mm-hmm. I don't have to know what type of... AI solution they use, but I get to benefit in that particular use case um, from from what it allowed us to do.
0: And all of the, the the big brother advocates and conspiracy theorists have just shut off our show and are no <laughs> longer listening, and they're <laughs> hiding somewhere now, hearing that. But that's the reality. That's that's where we're headed. Okay, so Google uh, back <laughs> back to back to Google in in how they influenced the uh, uh, the, the retinal. Yeah, so,
2: so they did some work in that. And, and there were lots of other companies, frankly, that have been taking healthcare data and trying to make use of it. Mm-hmm. That said, it's one thing to do this in a laboratory. It's another to try and bring it to a real clinical environment and make mm-hmm. it work. There is a, a recent review of looking at artificial intelligence solutions applied to COVID-19, mm-hmm. this awful, awful pandemic that I hope we're almost through.
0: Fingers crossed.
2: Um, and realizing that of these 200 or so and some of them which had amazing results at first first glance, mm-hmm. none of them were really transformative to our, in terms of how we were able to make benefits mm-hmm. in terms of healthcare delivery or health of, of our patients mm-hmm. with respect to COVID. So there's a lot more work to be done, not just in designing these algorithms, but to figure out how we take that algorithm and help it actually benefit. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: there, yeah, it's, that's got to be one of the the biggest barriers, also, uh, in a research setting, particularly with machine learning. You can you can take these things and, and run models and, and and generate results and change input and change outcome. But when you bring it online per se in you know the in the OR or even even in a in a, a clinical setting, uh, outside of of something that's that's as you know critical like. All of a sudden, there are consequences—big consequences. Yes. So that's in and, and, and they
2: can be hard to and t- they can be very hard to predict, um, and and those consequences can be very real for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, lots of caution. So, for instance, let's say we took a we have a fancy algorithm, mm-hmm. and we train on a bunch of patients, and then we then take that algorithm to another part of the country, and we. Are we assuming that the patients in another part of the country are just like the patients in our part of the country? Mm-hmm. It could just be a community. It could be a regional issue. It could be the differences in the predominant health issues that those patients are facing. Um, it could be something relatively simple as diet, <laughs> modes of transportation, climate, um, seasons, sure, which big sure. issue, you know, see Florida versus New England mm-hmm. uh, as just one example of that. And so we make assumptions that everybody's the same. That doesn't those usually aren't hold good, true. Yeah, those aren't good <laughs> assumptions to make. And so then you're faced with the need to really continually reevaluate to make sure that that these assump that the even the bare minimum assumptions you make still hold and whatnot, reevaluate how you're going to address those changes.
0: Those are those are some of the caveats. So we started with with some of the progress that's been made, and that's that's obviously some of the the uh, the impediments to to really bringing this stuff into full force. Uh, what are what are some of the maybe promising avenues that you thought would be something and that really didn't turn out to be a good application, at least at this point. The great part about whether it be medicine or research, anything that, that either of us are involved in, that people maybe don't understand and that I would say just as a, a addendum here that, that COVID and dealing with this COVID pandemic has shown. And people say, well, the science and this is what we know and blah, blah, blah. That's a snapshot and you get more information, just like you're talking about as soon as you more information, more variables that changes the picture that we have. So when I say something that maybe that you were hoping would be an avenue for application for this that didn't turn out for it, maybe at that time, regardless of whether you could circle back to it later or not.
2: Yeah, so I, I think one of the better examples was frankly the first example. I really thought that if we could predict patients' pain after surgery, we could make meaningful decisions to reduce it, and really benefit them. And that never even left the manuscript. I mean, we got it. Uh, we did some work in that area, showed some improvements, mm-hmm. published it, um, learned a lot in the way, and it's still not still not ready to make make headway. But we've learned a lot in the process too. So it wasn't maybe the desire, the outcome we were hoping for naively, (laughs) (laughs) but I I still think we, uh, we've all come out better for the process and learning experience. Uh, And again, I um, thankfully, you know, minimize the risk exposure to our patients by, by taking this a little more, a little more slowly, perhaps.
0: You, uh, you mentioned that if i could circle back a little bit to the masters during that was the last year of your residency when you were when you were working on that the uh, the project not necessarily mm-hmm. the masters the last the, the project just with my experience in those whom i'm close to residency doesn't offer a lot of free time and i would venture to say that that i don't know about most but at least many disciplines of medicine even after residency after fellowship are probably the same way. In your normal, maybe let's not boil it down to a day, but over the course of a month, in your normal routine, you on your CV you have patents, you have research, you're very well funded. It looks like from what I can see, um, but then you're also board-certified anesthesiologist, and in, in you're practicing there too. You have, you know, co-directorships. What what is your normal? division of the time that you spend practicing medicine that you that you spend with the research how, how do you fit all that in and you said you have a family
2: right so so the family comes first good answer I, it, it just um, you know when the family needs to rise, that it's end of you know end of discussion mm. um and and i'm very fortunate to work with a group of folks i think who share that that value set so we understand yeah just like in other days some of our colleagues families the they'll also come first, right? <laughs> and and we, we flex to accommodate that too. Uh, so so we're, we're very fortunate in that regard. So how I spend a typical week has changed over the years. Um, more recently, um, one to two days a week in the operating room, plus, plus calls and late stays and such like that. And, and we're fortunate to have a pretty narrow f- clinical focus right now, I, we, I, I focus almost completely under in, in my subspecialty. Mm-hmm. Sub sub specialty, I guess. <laughs> 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 with with just an amazing group, I, I got to brag on these folks. Please, um, these folks are flown around the world on a, at least they were pre COVID, on a regular basis to teach, and they were not just teaching junior trainees; they're tre- teaching senior consultants and what they do. And so, getting to come to work on a daily basis and work with these work with these folks. Mm-hmm incredibly humbling. <laughs> and these are fellow anesthesiologists fellow or anesthesiologists. multidisciplinary? Fellow anesthesiologists. Okay. Also our surgeons and stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I, I know best the folks on my own specialty, sure, sure. I, I, I think. Um, and they're, just, they're phenomenal. They, they're, you, you go to these meetings and it's, oh, say hi to so-and-so for us. And it, it's it really is uh, a really cool network of folks. I'll also. These folks are incredibly compassionate. They they are working hard behind the scenes. They don't they don't always get any credit. Um, nobody sees or frankly remembers what they <laughs> did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and and they take this very serious their responsibilities very seriously mm-hmm. and and they're just amazing. So it's a real privilege to get to come to work and work with these folks. I'm going to um, jump in there again yeah. and,
0: and and reinforce that just by uh, sharing something I've, I've talked yeah. about on on a couple previous episodes but i had this knee injury a little while back and so and and again half our audience probably like the knee injury again (laughs) um but you know i i was volleyball as we discussed before the show volleyball is a big thing for me for a long time and uh i even got the uh the the i guess the the blessing of being able to play late in grad school for the club team here at the university well beyond when any of the people that were playing when i started playing collegiate club volleyball were still playing um as a result of that the uh it would have been the fall after i finished my phd um i was playing intramural volleyball which you're still allowed to do here as you know faculty and and staff um and i went to jump and my quadricep came off oh no (laughs) well that's what i said actually almost verbatim um but what I wanted to say with, you know, talking about the compassion of, of your fellow, an, fellow anesthesiologist, I hadn't dealt with anything like that before personally, despite, you know, I, I played hockey, I was a martial artist, I've been playing volleyball forever, never had to deal with any of that. And it was pretty clear what had happened. Um, you know, my, my patella was sitting up upright and, and I could see that and um, so anyway, fast forward after the, you know, the repair and all that, I had a femoral nerve catheter. Okay. Yeah. That that I left the oil. it was in a little uh you know, uh, what do you call it, a fanny pack kind uh-huh. of thing, you know, a little yep. satchel and, and every few seconds it just put a, a drip on and but as part of that, what was really neat is with my discharge I was given some instructions about who to call and to check in and and again with this being totally new to me, I'm having to call and, and speak with someone who I don't know. I knew I knew my surgeon. Uh-huh. I specifically requested my surgeon. Um, we mentioned, you know, Dr. Davies, Lori Davies. Um, she was not my anesthesiologist. I asked my anesthesiologist if she knew, if uh, if he knew Lori Davies. And but but at the time, you know, I'm I'm dealing with people who I'm I'm going to go to sleep and trust them that I'm going to wake up. That was my first concern. I didn't realize it, that and i was probably told just you know too much information didn't, didn't know but that even after you know throughout recovery that the anesthesiologists were going to continue to work with me to make sure that i was pain free and it wasn't through opioids and this and that it was through this this i guess i guess it's a nerve block mm-hmm. essentially right yep. peripheral nerve block and and i want to echo your sentiments that they were and i think i was dealing with fellows and and you know some of the nicest, most thoughtful, compassionate, asking questions available at any time, and I even actually, you know, when I called them, they said, "Okay, when you get to this point, you're probably going to start running out of the, you know, the the block, and and you'll need to call us to to have it removed." And the have it removed was, we're going to give you instructions on how to remove it over the phone, and I did not expect that. Um, but by that point, uh, you know, to, to really, to drive the point home by the time the anesthesiologist that I had spoken to a couple times, or the fellow I had spoken to a couple times over the phone, by the time I got to that point and they said, okay, well, I'm going to walk you through taking it out. If I hadn't had those previous conversations, I'd say, nope, full stop. <laughs> I would be happy to drive in and you can do this because it was, you know, it was through the skin and in, into my thigh uh-huh. and, uh. But that wasn't my reaction. And in hindsight, um, I, I trusted him implicitly. and I said, okay, well, tell me what to do. And it was because of, of all of what you're talking about right now, just, you know, the expertise, the compassion, you know, it was, it was a really unique experience. And I would prefer not to go through again, sure. <laughs> but I'm glad that because I did, I went through it with the people uh, taking care of me that, that were so, you know, for anybody that, that after your comments didn't, you know, fully grasp how amazing you know, the physicians and anesthesiologists here are at UF. Well, there you go. That's, that's my take on it.
2: Well, it warms my heart to hear it and, and wonderful that our, uh, our fellows uh, also, you know, d- did as they did as they, uh, as they did, frankly. I wish we could get everybody a pain-free experience. Um, we usually were aiming for um, a functional recovery. Yeah. Folks, <laughs> or, folks I, we just, we can't stamp out all the pain. There are lots of safety issues, for it, but um but I do think we can help folks manage their pain a whole lot better mm-hmm. and and, and uh, return to function as quickly and safely and, and comfortably as mm-hmm. possible. Uh,
0: so before no I answer. went on and bloviated about my own <laughs> stuff, which you know I don't talk about myself that much on the show, so that'll take care of me for the next six months, okay. you were talking about how you divide your time and now how most recently um, it's a little different than it has sure, been before. Yeah. So,
2: so one to two days a week in the operating room mm-hmm. and, and block room and various services help, help neck care patients um and there's a lot of teaching that and that goes into that at, at the bedside as well mm-hmm. um and then the other days um three to four days a week um are spent in uh research increasingly administration <laughs> roles um so a fair amount of education and mm-hmm. advising mentoring as well covid's as, as it can easily regress we're often going back to spending more time traveling for talks and such like mm-hmm. that so, so a couple engagements like that which was Little, little anxiety provoking, right? Cause uh, oh, we haven't traveled in a while, like for, <laughs> for for meetings. i kind of forget how to do this. Yeah. um, but also exciting. Like, Wow, sure. we're gonna get to get back hey, to doing back this. off the leash. And, yeah, yeah, see how everybody's doing at the um uh, at these meetings, and it's it's fun to exchange ideas. Frankly, I mm-hmm. we I learned a ton. Um, at these at these events and such, with
0: with the education that you're mentioning, are you also now so embedded in the use of the machine learning and AI that you're that you're able to uh, spread that knowledge? to some of the younger physicians and, and whatnot, or?
2: Yep, yep, so we're working on that and through a couple different venues. Um, our dean, Dean Cook, has, has been incredibly supportive um, in terms of helping us develop a curriculum and, and resources to help um, with, with clinical education with, and, and artificial intelligence related methods. Because our students, are they're gonna be seeing this more and more in the practice and so we, th- we think it's very helpful to introduce the basics to them mm. and so they can be conversant. We, we also think it's really frankly helpful For these uh, multidisciplinary teams, right? Yeah, I think everybody's looking for a a, unicorn—a unicorn of somebody who is um, an expert in the quantitative sciences, um, does theoretical mathematics while they're doing heart surgery, right? (laughs) And um, and can also code with their toes. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for the the and, and through the consummate person who can do everything
0: well you're seeing that it reflected in the most recent job posts even here at uf there's a big ai initiative where or across multiple colleges and disciplines they're looking for a you know a, a associate assistant to associate level business faculty that also has experience in ai or exercise sciences with experience in machine learning and it doesn't matter which discipline but that that extra component is tagged on there i think it's really a a strong indication of which direction we're heading
2: what we see and and we are we are starting to get those transdisciplinarily trained individuals Mm -hmm. Um, until we get to that point where that's pervasive we develop teams Uh, Folks who are really good at AI methodologies, Mm -hmm. but um, maybe didn't have as much training in a given domain. And we have folks who know a whole lot about their particular domain, but haven't had a lot of training in AI. Mm -hmm. And getting those folks to work together in teams is really, really important. Um, And it's not easy, right? Because you sometimes don't know which questions to ask because you don't know what tools are available. And sometimes you don't know which tools to develop because you're not sure which which problems need solving, mm-hmm. and and so getting, helping folks get trained to the point where they can more actively participate and engage in those teams, we think is is a is a good route to helping build these multidisciplinary programs. UF is an incredibly collaborative place, um, so this is it, it's in many respects very easy and fun to do this year.
0: And and when you say research administration, is, is that what uh, a large portion of that that task or that job is is to to help make those connections and and make sure everybody's working in the same direction with the same set of tools
2: yeah we have we have teams that we're that we're working with to help develop um infrastructure for ai related tools across uf health and across uf Um, and that infrastructure takes many many forms and again it's it's a great team that's working together to figure out how to solve this and and uf isn't alone that this is a pervasive issue across the us of, of how you build out these infrastructure platforms so it's Getting to do my own research, and there's a, there's a bit of administrative work as well that we're seeing, and 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 building out this infrastructure and related tasks. There's also the hiring initiative itself, which you were talking about, which is which is really really exciting. But um, uh, yeah, it, we're we're trying to make sure we grow this community well and and continue its positive collaborative approach together that's
0: really exciting to be in the driving force of of something that's that new i I, and and i i I don't say that i'm I'm dead serious when i say that because that's outside of of my expertise and my experience um as i said i collaborate a bit with uh with adam woods dr adam woods here and and, uh, his lab uses a lot of multimodal imaging and Mm -hmm. and so the machine learning in the pipeline of taking just i say just as as like it's not magic itself, but just brain scans of of different types and making them make sense and then looking at differences between them in order to, uh, and and when I say differences, it could be structural, it could be functional, all kinds of different things, hence the multimodal, uh, to then start comparing them. And I think that would be impossible without the machine learning. So he's doing much of the same in, in the respect that yeah, you may have an engineer come on as a postdoc that that is not a, a neuropsychologist or, or anything like that but man she can really handle the programming and so she learns a bit about what what i guess field she's working in and applying her trade and and in turn those who work with her including dr woods himself um gets more of an insight into to her expertise And then there's that gray area in between and it seems like the more of those connections you can make you know this multi-sided venn diagram that's when the when the real magic happens
2: i agree i agree that those those uh those collaborations are really i think what's going to help us move forward and frankly also make it a lot of fun to get the work done too um because it's so many new ideas and and so much low-hanging fruit frankly
0: well and and you said that it, it would be nice one day if we have You know the the jack of all trades or the jill of all trades you know your your real life tony stark that can pretty much do anything in a job but the fact of the matter is is you you just don't have enough time for that i always laugh when and i i bring up the comic book thing tony stark's iron man for those of you who are are not familiar with this uh comic book and, and movie character but it's funny whenever you watch the the movies where they try to elevate somebody and just show how how much of an intellectual powerhouse they are and they have eight phds and all that and I know a few people that have a couple PhDs, but you don't have time for all that. You just don't. You you don't have time to be a a, a statistical giant and a, a, a surgeon and a researcher. I mean, even even the MD PhD training is relatively new. Uh, you know, where where you you specifically get training in in you know as a clinician and as a researcher in one package. So. That idea of collaborating uh, is the way to do it and the idea of a team. And, of course, it's supported. The NIH would much rather give money to a group of, of inter- and multidisciplinary researchers than it would one person trying to tackle it all. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to talk about your origin story, speaking of Iron Man and all of this. You, you've got a, a pretty wide footprint in the space now uh, for what you're doing. And you know, you say your your specialty or your subspecialty or sub sub specialty. I get that, but the fact of the matter is, is is you, you've got your finger in a lot of pies that that you know are are helping people greatly right now. If we go back to well, I don't know, say undergrad, have you always uh, clearly you couldn't envision in undergrad exactly what you're doing now because. We're – and this is not an age joke, but we're eons from that. You don't have to go back very far before – this is just not a, a, a thing that is even on the horizon with machine learning. But if we go back there, was this the direction that you had always intended? Were you always thinking even medicine or anesthesiology?
2: No. Um, oh, golly. Uh, well, back in high school, all, all my buddies wanted to be pilots, and I did too. <laughs> nice. Know, then my eyes – uh, weren't up to the task, and so there, there went that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I really had. Uh, they loved math and science, or they loved math. Uh, I wasn't. I just, I struggled with math a whole mm-hmm. lot. I, my getting through Calc two is a testament to miracles. Um, <laughs> and I mean that very sincerely. Um,
0: isn't it? Isn't it strange though? How and <laughs> maybe because I, I can sympathize with you on a, a, a very deep level uh, with that, but but I'm also an analytical person. And there seems to be a slice of the pie of, of individuals like us who are, I would say, highly analytical, but not from a math standpoint or at least, you know, historically. Uh, so I, I get that. But that presents a challenge all into itself. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It, yeah it, um, and I didn't grow up coding or anything like that. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed working on the biochemistry stuff I was doing as an undergrad. <laughs> um, had, some, had some great mentors and teachers there. Ben Dunn, uh, was a fantastic uh, advisor. Um, he's he's since retired now, um, yeah. I uh, I had no inkling I'd end up doing this machine learning AI stuff. I, I was never on the table. Uh, although the anesthesia side, so uh, in college I was um, was a pharmacy tech for a little while, and also just I needed a job in the summers to help pay. Um, and then I got a job. It was a hospital pharmacy, and then I got a job. Um, scrubbing the blood off the floors and lights um uh in the operating rooms over the summer loved that mm-hmm. and the next summer came back did that for a while and then got trained as an anesthesia tech too um which was which was fascinating really humbling um, and a, as a
0: tech what what do you do in, mostly, in that strata
2: mostly cleaning again <laughs> <laughs> uh, turning over supplies hooking up new circuits um resupplying restocking mm-hmm. um
0: but you get to be right there in the th- thick of it
2: yeah um it was around the area. Just kind of learned mm-hmm. how it worked, and it was uh, hospital I worked that wasn't a level one trauma center or anything like that, but still learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, still was humbled a lot. So, you know, going through medical school, it was always on the radar. Like, I, and because I remember just being fascinated. You look at these drug trays and these just massive carts of different types of fluids. And You think, how do you know when to give what for which, why reason? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, you look at those vital signs. Sometimes those vital signs didn't look so hot, and they were kind of busy fixing them. You're like, how did they know how to do that? Mm. I was, It was it was really, really fascinating.
0: Uh, well, I, let's stick on that for just one second, because we, we do have a little bit of time to do this. That's one thing that one of the many things about your job as an anesthesiologist that fascinates me. And then, of course, you know, as a patient, you don't get to see any of that. <laughs> if, if, if you're in most cases, I would say, if you're doing your job right. Um but it seems like there has to be a lot of for someone who, who wasn't self-prescribed from a strong math background. It seems like there's a fair amount of calculation and and whatnot that that has to be you know right fly not fly by the wire, but but in in process that you can't really plan out because things do change uh, over the course of a surgery or, or or whatnot. That seems to be a lot on the table at one time.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, going back to your earlier point, you know, I think there maybe is a difference between um certain cognitive skills in math and computation versus others in processes and systems. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they overlap in some cases, they're different in others, but the, the process system physics, uh, organizational structure, I, I, I really enjoyed that part of okay. the the analytical discipline. Same. Okay. D- yes, there is a bit of calculations and such involved, but it's it's not quantum physics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I didn't have to do any matrix algebra to get through uh, residency. Right. Um, so,
0: yeah. Okay. All right. So, so you're, and, and while we're on the point, before you get back onto the, the process of the origin story, what are some of the most, if, if you could pick out a couple, and of course, you only know, have to be cognizant of, of, you know, HIPAA and all of these things, but what are some of the more interesting challenges maybe specifically anecdotally um that you can think of in in anesthesiology when you're in the OR have there been times where after the fact you thought oh wow that i handled that that was thanks for the training
2: i think all frankly physicians have a <laughs> similar have a similar thing it's Mm -hmm. it's one of the exciting things to see in our residents is to see them progressing through the training Mm -hmm. pipeline and uh learning those skills and and gaining that confidence
0: is there anything in particular that i know i'm putting you on the spot to look back over decades of of a career here but is there anything on the spot that you can think of where where there was a, a particular situation or case that you had to uh work through that that something unexpected came up and that that you uh you made it through to the other side, and then learned something that was maybe integral to the rest of your practice from that point on.
2: You know, I was doing pediatrics about the time that my older daughter was born. Okay. And I, for a while, found it really difficult to do pediatrics.
0: I can imagine. Okay.
2: After 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 she was born, I I, I it as she got a little older and such, I, you know, that kind of worked itself. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there that that um, I remember talking to another couple of residents actually in a few different specialties, and they had, they had noted the same thing. And I I think it it um, I think lots of parents run into that mm-hmm. at some point, and, and folks handle it differently and in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one I I specifically no- remember. Taking a deep breath. I, I will also sh- I guess I'll also share that as I get older um you you begin to think more on you know, we take care we take care of some really sad and awful situ. we we help people through some really sad and awful situations in their life mm-hmm. um some that I wouldn't ever wish on anybody mm-hmm. um and while on the one hand we are we are sometimes able to help them through that a little bit um it's never enough yeah. it's a, it's uh, and that that some sometimes is harder than others. Um, and again, I don't think an anesthesia or unique or immune. I think that cuts across not just medicine, but I think anybody in any slice of healthcare, care, frankly. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's it's important to note as we kind of go through covid and we look at how f- how folks have have worked through that um what it means Mm -hmm. but talk about tangents we're moving (laughs) no (laughs) but that's that's no
0: that's a great answer and and i i I would just say that uh i had a (laughs) one of my teammates a good friend of mine who's an internist now um and has been for some time uh at one point was getting ready to take the mcat and uh he said i hadn't been to grad school at this point he said oh you should should come take the mcat with me We, we go to med school talking like it was summer camp and uh and the, well, the funny part of my response was, no, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm a non-traditional student. We had talked about that before. So I started undergrad later. I said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to be in school for another you know, eight years. And uh, the funny thing is, is, going through a master's and a PhD, I was in school for longer <laughs> than that anyway. So uh, irony is uh, not lost on me, but um Anyhow, so so circling back to this, I've I've thought about that. Well, you know, in the what if, if I had become a physician, what what I would think would be the challenges, and 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 perhaps the thing I respect most beyond the intellect and the decision making and the compassion and all of that, that that goes into the job, regardless of of which field within medicine you're in or discipline within medicine, is the ability, and not not all physicians have this, and and I, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but the ability to walk that line between being able to be compassionate through each case and through each patient, and 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 be that that person that they need um, in the moment, and and also you know professionally, but also not compile all of the bad things that you have to endure as a physician that could make it where you maybe wouldn't want to be close to that patient and be there for them, because you can't guarantee that you're not going to end up getting hurt in the process you know we're all people and and so um to know and to hear you say that that that's something that that still is a challenge um those are those are the types of physicians i would trust myself with so i you know thank you for that thank you for being one of the good guys i guess
2: well again we it's uh yeah i i think everybody everybody works through that and their own way, their own reasons based on, on you know, the best they can. Nobody right. wanted to show up and do a bad job that day, right? right. And uh, we are once again fortunate to work with a group bunch of folks who really do help maintain that positive, can-do attitude that, that goes such a long way to reinforcing that that mindset sure. um and that approach it, it's not perfect uh, well, <laughs> oh, well it's not and, perfect but well not
0: only that you could you could show up and have a good day and still not <laughs> have the outcome that you desire i mean that's that's the reality of it right yeah
2: but i, I do i i you know hats off to, to this incredible team that we do get to work with um and, and again not just in anesthesia but our nursing colleagues our surgeons uh, <laughs> It goes on and on, and the, the amazing folks we get to work with on a daily basis.
0: So let's turn it to, to the positive and, and wrap up here with uh, with a question, and maybe loaded or on the spot. But I like to know, particularly in with guests who are working in something that's very unfamiliar to a lot of people, and that's you know that's right on the bleeding edge. And you are. This is the the work that you're doing is is f- phenomenally intriguing to me. Um, so let's look ahead just down the road a little bit. You know, maybe just over the horizon. How do you see machine learning, and uh, and it can be within pain and anesthesiology or medicine in general? What do you think the the next way that that machine learning, deep learning, AI is going to be the most beneficial to the everyday person? Oh, the
2: everyday. And well, like I said, it can be with okay. the
0: everyday patient. Okay. Let's say that. Yeah. So,
2: where's artificial intelligence going to start helping us? Um, these are just some ideas. I have no commercial conflicts of interest. There's no no financial outlooks <laughs> are recommended based on this. It's just right. the... Well, it's not like we're recording this right. anyway or anything. <laughs> just the, uh, the thoughts of uh, somebody. chat. So, um, you know, I think actually one of the first places we'll see it is in spinal cord stimulator technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly uh, enough, our chronic pain colleagues are, are doing some fantastic work in that area, and I think they're going to get better at fine-tuning electrode placement signals adapting those as patients move throughout the day. Um, It's an area that's very conducive to that. It has the engineering expertise together. And so I think, if I had to guess, that would be one area we'd see it. I hope that we'll see it in clinical decision support and adaptive clinical decision support. Um, I'm not sure how far off we are. We're either really close or really far away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that, I hope that that's gonna be something that patients see as part of this idea of shared decision making where we say, all right, you know, we're wondering where to go next in the care of us, uh, in the care of you, and you know, here are decisions. Here are the potential decisions we could make, and you know, kind of here's the rationales to why, and 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 you kind know, of what our algorithms suggest might you know might happen with with which degrees of certainty maybe, and then what's most important to you? You know, what do you think of this? Um, so I hope that's helpful. I also think that it may enrich some of our diagnoses. So maybe you're doing an ultrasound and it says. Hey, we think that could be a blood vessel, even though you know, basically it doesn't look like one that maybe deserves, you know, a quick look on, on color flow or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe also doing a better job of helping us with measurements and some difficult things. You know, sometimes doing echocardiograms, it's a little hard to get the perfect view. And maybe that's something where we could use artificial intelligence to help refine some of those views and such. I think a lot of folks are hoping that it'll catch cancer on imaging and such like that. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Um, Excuse me. I think that would be wonderful. I'm not, again, not sure how far off that is. Um, That's a, it's a, it ends up being a really complicated task, even, again, just a thought exercise, Um, but one that's obviously incredibly high value if if we can achieve it. Um, Dermatology, same way. Mm -hmm. I think there's opportunities there. Um,
0: Yeah. What do you think? What do you think it's going to be the uh, (laughs) biggest advances? (laughs) That's, uh. That's a really good question, obviously, and thanks for turning that back on me. You know, as I as I try to deflect attention to myself, I've already I've already stepped way over my my boundary on that. I'm really interested to see um, my specific domain of interest is is looking at pain and how pain affects mobility, uh, particularly in older adults, and how um, right now I'm focused on on chronic pain conditions uh, that may arise, say, from from knee osteoarthritis or mm-hmm. whatnot, but but ways that um, that maybe an acute situation can result in a chronic alteration to pain mediation in, in in the the centrally mediated mechanisms that that we use to manage all of the sensory input that we get and what is painful and what's not and as you know over time you can get certain stimuli that that change that level that something mm-hmm. that shouldn't hurt and now it does um one thing that, that, we're, that we're trying to learn is, can we maybe phenotype these, these different pain types? And even in something as simple as osteoarthritis, um, there, there's not a, a really strong connection between this diagnosis of osteoarthritis and the disease severity and, and the pain that's experienced. It's, it's highly subjective. And so with that many variables that, that come into play, it's difficult for people like me to figure out if we can predict how your osteoarthritis may right now affect your ability to do day-to-day activities Mm -hmm. and how that may change as the disease itself progresses. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with a lot of variables in play, I would be really interested to see if, as I'm developing ways to just measure some of the effects of a specific condition like NEOA on a spectrum of of physical attributes and, and capabilities, if we can if we can do that and then start as we start to develop some of these these phenotypes well you know subtypes of pain and and predict maybe how that will in turn affect daily activities and then direct treatment to that specific phenotype because as it is right now my my background is in exercise science Um, and and as a physiologist and a kinesiologist we have all of these ways of of, of measuring all kinds of functional capacities Um, to the extent that, that we can start to apply exercise as medicine. And it's not a panacea, but if there was such a thing, it'd be, it'd be awful close. Um, but just like any other, uh, treatment exercise, it's not a one size fits all. It's, it's not a magic pill. Uh, so there are ways to modify exercise and apply it specifically to specific situations and in, in, in patients and, um, and I think machine learning would go a long way to helping us not only characterize some of those subtypes of pain, those phenotypes, but also what may be helpful in in specifically addressing that and treating and managing
2: it. I, that sounds, that's really exciting. I, you know, I think of, you have a, uh, if you're on a workout program and you do the exact same exercise with the same performance measures, mm-hmm. and some days you're flying and some days <laughs> it's, I can't believe, I, you know, I just barely finished it, right? What mm-hmm. happened? and and there's a lot there right there's a lot to deconstruct and figure out why the difference is there but it's kind of a guess yeah if, so it would be fascinating to say let's put some data to that to mm-hmm. figure out what differ you know d- did this make things better did this make things worse you know what do i, what do, I do with this um i think that's a it's a really exciting opportunity to figure out and that's the Golly, that's a, even a healthy example. Imagine th- for your knee arthritis right. patients, right. what that could mean looking forward.
0: Well, we we work on a, a principle, um, and I say we, and this is the, the exercise science paradigm, but but a model of you know specific adaptations to impose demands. This is nothing new. The said principle, and uh, which basically says if you and I go you know in, into a gym, and lift uh, a certain weight that's you know that that that's scaled to you or me or mm-hmm. or you know somebody half our age or twice our age, whatever. But if we work with a specific volume and a specific resistance, then our body will respond in a way such that it will be more capable of performing that task with less draw on the system, right? We'll become more efficient at doing that. Human body's amazing that way. I don't have to tell you that. But what changes is, like you said, when you're you're dealing with different ages, different health profiles, there are different characteristics and there are a lot of mechanisms at play. We understand a lot of those pathways but but many it's an educated guess and we're still refining those processes and in our understanding of them and then when you throw something like pain in which is highly subjective unto itself and looking at how pain impacts that process um, that's where it gets muddy and and so i'm hoping to carve out a little space there and and when when i'm able to start to, to maybe bring in machine learning. Otherwise I'm going to get left in the dust. And there are people who are already doing this. We've, we've had uh, Dr. Jen Nichols on the show before and, and she's discussed some of the way she's doing this. And, you know, if, if I'm out there with a, a pencil and paper and, and all of my colleagues are, are out there with, you know these like hypergator. Um, I'm not, I'm going to have a short career. I'm going to be looking into doing something else. So I, but I do think that that's one way that that we can really apply uh, some of the technology that you're using to my interest. So I'm hoping that in the very near future we can establish enough variables uh, and, and and maybe make some hypotheses to where it can be applied.
2: You know your your comment brings up a really interesting point. Um, Twenty years ago to code a neural network. <laughs> was about a thousand lines of code mm-hmm. a thousand lines of code you know, even if you knew what you were doing, that was going to take you a while. That's right. One of the big advances I think that gets overlooked in, in AI quote unquote nowadays is that to do a neural, to design a neural network with computer code is well it had been six and now I think it's down to one to two. Mm-hmm. So it frees you have to do lots of other things right it, it makes it makes these advanced toolkits more accessible. And I think that's really where the advance comes. Yes, we'll come up with fancier algorithms and we'll come up with richer data sets, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the real value is when you make them accessible and interpretable uh, and frankly also fair. But I think the fairness hopefully follows from making it accessible and interpretable so that you can have a much more, you have more opportunity to look inside inside the box, right, and see what happened. Uh, And... I think that's where this comes to be, uh, and and comes to realize its full potential. Not keeping it rarefied. Yes, there'll be rarefied aspects we, you know, on the on the cutting edge and innovation and, and more power to it, keep mm-hmm. pushing. But also the accessibility and usability and interpretability and, and hopefully from that follows fairness and, and uh, use and, and safe uses as well from that.
0: And that seems to be the way it goes, right? We went from when when you and I and I think we're pretty close to the same age, when you and I were we're very young. It took whole rooms to do what the phone that we carry in our right. pocket readily and easily does. And it does it much faster. And that's not a whole big span of time. So I think this is the next frontier of that to work into. Yeah. Well, hey, I tell you, we've already detailed how busy you are. And so I want to thank you for giving so much of your time to come on and, and discuss some of this. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to have favorites, but I have a list. I don't know, maybe not one favorite, but I have a list and. And you've made that a long time ago in this conversation. So if there's ever any time where you'd like to come back on the show, please, you're welcome at any point. Uh, We'd love to have you. Well, thank
2: you very, very much. I'm going to go tell a bunch of my buddies to try and sign up for this uh, because I I really think it would be exciting to hear more about some of the clinical things we can offer patients and and, – and kind of how we approach those issues. I, I, a lot of it happens behind the scenes a bit, so it might be a, might be exciting and interesting to see see what happens.
0: I'd welcome it. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks
2: so much. Have a good one.
1: Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain Podcast, all one word, on Instagram.